All right, everyone. Welcome back to Deconstructing Health and Fitness with another special guest today. Liz and I have somewhat finished our projects and are ready to focus on having awesome conversations with awesome people. So we'd like to welcome Dylan Sessler today. He's a really interesting guy. You can find him on TikTok, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But I'm going to let him introduce himself and talk a little bit about what it is we're going to be getting into today. Well, Chris and Liz, thank you very much for having me. Um, I would say I'm I'm quite a normal person. I don't I don't see myself as being extravagant or ridiculous or anything like that. But I just found myself a couple of years ago in a place where I wanted to help people overcome the very things that I went through. And, and a lot of that was suicide. A lot of that was PTSD, trauma, um, a number of different mental health issues that I suffered with um, for, for most of my life. And so I, I found myself on TikTok of all places. Um, as an introvert, I didn't expect that. But I, I built a TikTok following of over half a million followers. I wrote a book. I have a podcast. And now the, 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 the tiny little introvert that I started off being in my, in my younger years has now become a person that expresses himself fully and, and unconditionally um, to a point where I come on random podcasts and talk to random people about my feelings and things that involve stuff. So here I am. That's awesome. What an intro, right? I mean, there's like a million that, directions to go from there. That inspired me. I was like, maybe someday I'll get out of my room and get on TikTok. <laughs> you don't even have to get out of your room to get on TikTok. I don't. You don't. You, don't. <laughs> you can actually true. stay in exactly the same place and be on TikTok, right? Yep. It's actually recommended. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like the dance craze is over. We're getting onto the talking now on TikTok, which is great, right? And I think it's also perceived as an app for like and I'm going to say this, I'm going to go out on limb for younger people, right? But I'm not having that experience on TikTok at all. I'm finding a lot mm-hmm. of really high quality content by really, really well-versed professionals in their field. And I think it's a fantastic medium uh, that's unique in the space, really. So, I mean, we could talk about TikTok all day, but we're not Good. really here to talk about that. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, I mean, I have a bunch of videos I'd be happy to share because <laughs> I send TikToks out. That's how you know I care about you. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the biggest reasons for you coming on today um, is that we spend a lot of time talking about women's issues in fitness, and it's a great opportunity now to talk to a man who also has done some work in psychology around sort of what goes on for men in the fitness space and why that can be an intimidating place, why it can actually backfire and create more problems than it solves, um, and just also, you know, before we even get into that, just back up a little bit into your personal story and how you came to all of this. Cause you've got quite an interesting past there, Dylan. I, yeah, I've, I've been a few places. I've been around the, around the world a couple of times. Um, I, I think my story really starts. If you want to get into that is uh, I lost my dad to suicide at six years old. Um, and, and that's really when, when you talk about like, where does TikTok come into this? This is, it really goes back to that because what happened when my dad ended his life was the last time I remember him, the last moment I have uh, in my memory bank of him was him telling me he'd come home um, and him, him telling me he loved me and, and stepping out that door with me. What At the time, what I felt was this moment where he's not, right? I, I very much felt this in the moment, this, instinct, this intuition kind of bubbling up within me saying, no, he's not coming back, right? I felt that. And, you know, I think people are incredibly intuitive and this happens more often than we care to understand. 
But I looked at that moment and I recognized he's not, he's not coming home. And it, 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 it broke me inside when I, re- you know, when I recognized that that was true. Um, that's, that's the, the nightmare and the, you know, the, the dream that you never want to come true, but it did come true for me. Um, as I found out the next day and again, where, where TikTok comes in is after that moment, I was silent, right? I, mm. I did not feel, I did not allow myself to feel with other mm. people though. I did feel, um, though I did have emotions, though I did have anger and frustration and hate and, you know, so many different things bubble up to the surface so many different times. What I recognize is that for 20 years, for nearly 20 years, I did not speak to people about what happened, what I felt, you know, I, I didn't tell people I knew he was, he was not coming home. I didn't, I didn't know how to express that. I didn't, didn't know how to go into that. Um, and so that's what's so remarkable about what I do now is that I come on random podcasts and talk about my feelings and not every one of them is like this, where I can eloquently share all of these, you know, incredibly deep moments about my life. Cause there are many, right. I've, I've been deployed to Afghanistan twice. I've lost soldiers. I've lost friends. I've lost family. Um, I've lost children. Um, it's not always that easy to, to walk onto a podcast or, come to different people and express that and share that. And you can undoubtedly feel when I get to something that is emotionally difficult, but yet I'm here, right? Like somewhere between six years old and 32 years old, I found the ability to express myself. Um, And, you know, TikTok is a part of that, but it really started uh, about seven years ago when I nearly took my own life. Um, And so all of this kind of comes to a point where what we're talking about today is, is not necessarily just men, it's people, right? People Mm -hmm. go through these moments of extreme trauma, terror, um, you know, pain, struggle, so many different things, trials and tribulations, however you want to call it. um, And, and find themselves in a place where they have something they do not know how to express. They do not know how to share. They don't have the words or the understanding or the, ability to expose and and discuss and have conversations about and that's what i'm really here to discuss is that it's not just men but men have a clearly defined path that makes it even harder in some in some circumstances just like women have their own path that makes it harder in their own circumstances um i know men right i know my path because it's very similar suffer in silence right you can't have emotions even though What's remarkable about that is apparently anger is not one of those emotions. Like we, we can discount that one. That one's okay. Right. That one's allowed for men. Right. <clears throat> um, but everything else is off limits. You can't cry. You can't feel. You can't allow yourself to be empathetic because it's weak. Um, and, and that's what, you know, throughout my life, I never, I never appreciated about my experience. You know, I, I looked around at other people who you know, didn't have to go through what I went through. I I looked around at other kids as I grew up and and recognized they weren't going through a suicide. They weren't going through the the domestic violence that happened after after that, when my, uh, my mother's boyfriend would beat me and she didn't know. Right. And I wouldn't know that later on in life. Um, you know, they weren't going through the bullying and all of that kind of culminating to a point where I'm like, what do I do here? You know, how do I, how do I move forward? How do I get through this stuff? And it, 
it all becomes this, it all becomes a culmination of different, you know, terrifying circumstances that end up in a place where for me, it was suicide. Mm -hmm. That was the ultimate choice for me. And it came to a point where I was lucky, you know, I was so remarkably lucky to be able to say no to that, you know, because I'm, you know, I'll be honest with you. Like I still have, you know, if, if there's no screen, I still have the bullet in my hand that I nearly ended my life with. Right. And this is, you know, if you, if you think about like the movie inception, this is my token, right? Mm -hmm. This is that, this is that thing that I keep hold of that reminds me that this is, this is real life, you know, and this is, this is the most important thing that you can start to remember is that you're here and now doesn't necessarily determine where you go unless you allow it to. Right. And for me, it was that bullet. It was that round that I put into my Glock 34 that day that said, if I pull this trigger, which I almost did, I was, you know, I was a millimeter away. Um, there will be no future. There will be nothing else. There will be no, um, coming back from this. And when I stopped, the reason I stopped, I think, was asking the question, why are you here? Like, why are you the way that you are? And I never really, I never really put, you know, the equation together. I never really put what happened with my dad together with what happened afterwards and, you know, the bullying, the war, um, you know, you know, Chris, yourself, you're a corrective, uh, corrective, uh, therapist (laughs) that you're that right well i tore my acl three times right we only have two of them right so i (laughs) obviously had to do some some really fun stuff to make sure that third one happened um and so i had two acl reconstructions after my after my deployment a deployment where i was thinking i was going special forces i was going to you know the hardest training ever um in in the u.s military or the u.s army and i'm thinking I'm invincible. I'm doing this. I, I'm going to go serve my country. I'm going to go give more than I can ever give. And three days after my deployment, I tear an ACL. Right. Oh. And and so all of this stuff culminates to a point where, you know, here I am, here I am in this, in this situation where, you know, I got nothing left, but I was, I was so completely and utterly wrong, but I didn't have the perspective to see that. And I st- had to start asking the questions. I think now I'm here. One of the things that stood out to me right away in your story is that although your specific circumstances are unique to you, the experience of having a childhood traumatic event that you either numb out to or repress completely is so common. And I think this is one of the most important things to talk about around this is that that feeling of isolation, that feeling that you were the only one experiencing something like this is probably exactly why you're doing what you're doing now. And I think this is a unique time in mental health and the evolution of of treatment of mental health issues that more and more people are feeling confident and comfortable or brave, Mm -hmm. however you want to frame that, to step up and say, this happened to me. And the overwhelming support and common experience is really, really something to observe. And I've had, you know, many different kinds of trauma myself, and I almost never talk about it. And not because I'm not willing to, but because I find so much value in hearing about other people's stories 
Because I think one of the biggest keys to, to healing some of these wounds, and not that any of them can ever be completely healed, but it's the shared experience, the understanding itself that, yeah, okay, really bad shit happened to me, but really bad shit happened to somebody else too. And then looking at the pattern of the rest of your life, right? You, from what you described, your pattern was really to say, this is not going to define me. I can overcome all of this. I'm strong. I'm invincible. And this is not a uniquely male response to this situation, but it does have uniquely male components of not being allowed to feel weakness, right? And it makes me think of when women cry at work, and uh, <laughs> right? Because you said the only, the only emotion that's allowed for men particularly is anger. And so you turned that anger and you joined the armed forces. I mean, mm-hmm. what's more an expression of anger than war, right? And women, it's like, we are incapable of holding in our emotions, I think, in the same way that men manage to. And so it comes out of our faces, right? Like, and I, I've talked about this study before, but the, the study they did where they actually showed people specific images that evoked specific emotions, and then they caught their tears and tested them. And chemically, what they found was that the emotive chemicals in the tears matched the emotion they were trying to elicit in the people. So your crying is literally your body's physical release of excess emotional chemicals, right? So if you repress that, <laughs> it creates all sorts of other coping skills, right? Or coping mechanisms that you you execute on to deal with the trauma, with the negative experience that you've, yeah. you've had, right? And yeah. I don't mean in any way to minimize what you went through because, I mean, I'm always in awe of people who manage to push through and overcome and find positive coping strategies for their trauma, which you did, right? But they didn't work forever because you found yourself at that that crux point or that, you know, that turning point where you those those strategies cease to work effectively enough for you to process yeah. those emotions. Well, the the funny thing is is like we like to think we know what healthy coping skills are, right? Mm-hmm. Like but realistically, we're still trying to figure that out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look at the body is the body is a system. And so when you put too much pressure on one piece of the system, obviously it's going to fail, right? Mm-hmm. But then what happens when that fails? Well, that system is obviously going to be upheld by other parts of the system. And so when mm-hmm. you have this, you know, when you have trauma, when you have uh, grief, when you have loss, when you have all of these different things that happen, right? You were talking about the tears and how emotions are coming out of you, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when when you repress emotions, when you repress the feelings that undeniably have to come out, because that is part of our emotive communication system, at least that, that's how I see it. Well, you're, you're putting pressure on a piece of the system that wasn't designed to do what you're making it do. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, yeah. you're, you're creating circumstances within the body that it that it doesn't want, right? And And ultimately, so you know, I, I love I love the book, right? You're reading The Body Keeps the Score. We'll now get into when the body says no. Um, yeah. How how he talks about, you know, how we actually feel and how we like things like people pleasing, right? People pleasing is very much being linked to this enormous amount of stress that people are placing upon themselves because they're not willing to hold boundaries and hold space for themselves, right? So they're more willing to do things for others repress their own emotions and place uh, undue stress on their own circumstance, you know, in their, in their own body and, and deal with that, that ultimately the body comes back and says, 
we can't do this any longer in things mm. like autoimmune disorders, cancer, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, MS, all sorts of different things start to flare up um, that with with almost no understanding of where these came from, right? Yeah. Are the scientific studies perfect right now? No, but they're very much leading to this idea that we don't know what healthy looks like. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a remarkably interesting place to be um, in this whole dilemma of what we call mental health and health in general, because we all like to think we're right. And the fact <laughs> is, we're not. More, more than likely, we're, we're all trying to figure out what's right. Um, and I think the conversation very much needs to be we don't know, but we're trying to find out. Uh, and, and science can only go so far right now. Uh, and, and so it's a really interesting situation, I think, right now, you know, as you said, is that we're, we're looking at the science and the scientists and you know, the therapists, the psychologists, the psychiatrists. And for many years, many decades, they've always seen themselves as right. And I'm not discounting good therapists or psychiatrists or psychologists. But what happens is when you say this is what's right and it doesn't work for people, you have situations where people like myself have a job, right? I'm a mental health coach. And what happens is people go to therapists following the, you know, the guidelines or the rules or the, you know, the stipulations or even not following them um, of, the, of the therapy or, or the governing board um, and they don't do a good job. And so people get traumatized, they get hurt, they get upset, uh, they are treated with disrespect, there are all, all sorts of things, and then they get left behind. And the mental, mental health system goes rolling along, just like the army does, and people get left behind. And, and then apparently it's, it's okay for you know, therapists and, and mental health professionals to look down on coaches like myself and say, you guys are the problem. And the reality is, is we're all the fucking problem. <laughs> right. We all have to have a better conversation of saying, you know, clearly people find me beneficial and clearly people find you beneficial. And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to be better than you. I'm trying to help the system help everybody. Um, and I would love to not have a job because that would mean that I don't have to sit with someone at two in the morning and talk them out of suicide. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's an incredibly hard thing to do. And, you know, that's, that's not to say that, Every therapist doesn't do that, but we need to have better conversations, clearly. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. And I, I, I think you've hit on something else, really, which is at the core of why we started doing this podcast in the first place is this, this binary view of right and wrong about this is the way to do something. This is how you don't do it. And empirical data saying that this is the only thing is, is really problematic for the human experience because it's just not... It's just not that you way, know, right? <laughs> you know where that started really? I remember being really, really young and feeling really upset about religion because I'm like, well, we can't all be right. And if so-and-so thinks I'm going to hell and I think that they're like, their, you know, religion is wrong. Like, and then these people think that they're, you know, I remember just feeling like, yeah. what? And feeling so uncomfortable. And it's the same thing. Mm. The fitness industry is very religious in that way. It's where it's like, it's keto or nothing. Keto or nothing. <laughs> Do you have any fit? I remember this ad came up, Chris. I told you on YouTube, this ad came up and it's like, are you trying to get fit, but you're still eating fruit? 
What's wrong with you? <laughs> What's going on here? Right. And I, I think, but I think this is all part of the same thing, right? Because you said like, what is healthy? Like we don't, we think we know, and we marry ourselves to these belief systems, right? Which are very, very flimsily proven for the most part. And what we neglect most of the time as a cultural anthropologist, or as somebody with a background in cultural anthropology, what we neglect most of the time is the the importance and quality of our human relationships, yeah. right? Because you can't eliminate environment. Um, you can't eliminate, you know, social relationships, family relationships from our mental and physical health because they're not separate. And I say this so many times, I feel like, but like in the West, particularly, we have this whole mind body separation, which is completely ridiculous in my view, because <laughs> it's one system. Right. And the fact that we insist on separating it is, I, is like probably one of the most frustrating things in my <laughs> in my look at the pandemic. Right. Like, what did I say? Like, uh, you know, uh, you know, as you were coaching me, like during the pandemic and like towards, like, I don't know if I can say the end because it's not really the end, but I was like, well, I didn't get COVID, but man, it's like my mental health in the absolute gutter. Right. Because what COVID did was it absolutely eliminated the social support structures that most people had. Right. Like, yeah, and if it didn't completely. eliminate them, it too much pressure on one specific system, which is something you were saying, Dylan, it's this idea. And I, and I always say to people too, it's like every coping strategy is a good coping strategy until it isn't. Right. And I think that's the way to look at some of this stuff. It's like, okay, sometimes ice cream is the fucking answer, right? Sometimes that bowl of ice cream solved my problems. My husband actually has a t-shirt because he's English and it says, you know, alcohol does solve some problems. And I love that t-shirt because I think when you're using these things as, you know, temporary or occasional solutions to a problem, they're not problematic. It's when that becomes the only coping mechanism the organism has, when those social relationships, when the society that you live in, when the body that you live in is not doing the things that you need for survival. Because your body is like, it's your best friend. It is there for you no matter what, right? And it will do whatever you ask it to do. It will find a way, which is how you tore your ACL three times, right? Or had three ACL tears, right? Because you said, hey, body, (laughs) I'm going to do this crazy ass thing that that you wanted to do, right? Probably jumping out of a plane or off of a cliff or whatever it was. Helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) How did I guess? Right? But it because that gave you a rush of chemicals that was worth more than your ACL to your mm-hmm. body. And so that's a coping strategy, right? Like adrenaline seekers, and I'm one too, and so is my husband. But it's like these things allow us to process emotion. So the more aware we are of what we're doing and why we're doing it, the easier it is to say, maybe that's too much ice cream. <laughs> maybe yeah. I'm not really addressing this problem. But we have to be able to have the conversation in the first place, which is work, which is the work that you're doing, really, right? Is you're yeah. coming out and having the conversations and you're saying, hey, this is my experience and this sucked. And here are the mistakes that I made, and here's the things I did well. And and like hopefully this can help somebody. And I think this is why health and fitness is so jacked up. Because on the one hand, everybody wants better standards so that people aren't getting taken advantage of, right? That's the root Mm -hmm. behind saying there need to be better certifications and more qualifications and requirements for people to be mental health professionals or physical um, activity coaches or whatever term you want to slap on it. I think, I think where this, where this really came from, I'm going to, I'm going to go back in culture necessarily. Um, A movie called world war Z kind of taught me this, right? And, and there's a moment in World War Z where 
the main character who's Brad Pitt is, is stepping into trying to figure out where this virus came from. And he found him, he finds himself in Israel and Israel, the, the guys in Israel were like, you know, we had this practice and I can't remember what the practice is. I'm going to have to look this up um, where if there's, if there's a group of 10 people that agree on something, it's the duty of the last one to disagree. And, and so mm -hmm. what you find is that this, when you do that, I think this practice reveals that just because everybody agrees doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And, and obviously, I know in your industry, that is so profound because not everything in the fitness industry, a lot of people agreed on a lot of things, I'm sure. And ultimately, it came down to now it's being disproven, right? It's like mm -hmm. everybody in the world at one point probably thought the world was flat. Probably not anymore, though. You know, for I don't know, for whatever reason, we've probably figured out that majority of people don't think the world is flat anymore, you know? And so we, we never would have gotten there if one person stepped out of line and said, you know what? I don't think it's flat. And here's my reasoning, right? Let's, let's discover this, right? And so I think it's really important for, I don't care if it's people like myself without a degree or someone with a degree, I could care less who it is, but someone has to step out of line and say, you know what? Maybe this isn't right. Right. And, and maybe we should discover this. And so that's, that's what I, I like to think I'm doing, right. I like to think I'm that 10th man stepping out of line and in, in the mental health system. And I don't know how I'm going to step into the system itself and say, you know what, guys, maybe you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. um, but people need to do it. And I think TikTok has been that place where if there's any place that is, is having the conversations, it's TikTok, right. There's, yeah. there's people on TikTok stepping out of line and saying, you know what? Like there's one, there's one person, uh, I think she was an ex nurse that has looked into like the hospital system itself and its pricing system. Um, and, and literally what she does is, is hold hospitals who are not uh, uh, following the law of putting their prices on their website. Um, and she's holding them accountable and saying, you know, here's the place where you can direct them to the people that can get them in trouble. You know, like mm -hmm. that's profound. That's huge. That's right. beautiful. And it's important work, right? And I think yeah. this is where this is where there's room for collaboration because I don't think that us as coaches out here, right? The reason I'm called a coach and not a therapist or a nutritionist or a registered dietitian is because I'm not trying to fill that space. I'm not showing up saying, I have empirical evidence that says this is the one way. You go to a registered dietitian, they're going to write you a meal plan, but mm -hmm. they're not going to coach you on how to actually change your behavior from day to day, right? That's where I come in. So yeah. I'm not filling the same role. And there's room right. for all of those things. And I think that's the problem is when we decide that those relationships, those supportive relationships are less important than science. Yeah. Or the science mm -hmm. that says this is the way to do th something. Right. Well, and you can't create that through scientific experiment. Right. That's that's what I was going to say is there's no there's no science that can you know, there's obviously sociology you know, and that's where I kind of grew up in, in terms yeah. of, you know, what we call science. And some people look at sociology and say, it's not a science and that's fair, right? It's hard to, it's hard to look at humans and say, how can we scientifically study humans? Because look <laughs> at the human humans. experience, right? Like yeah. we can go through, you know, we can be relatively the same kind of person. Like you can be a six-year-old male, six-year-old male and go through the same experience and have completely different outcomes 
right? right? And so how do you be scientific about that? So that's like science can't study that. And so you have to make a lot of uh, educated guesses. You've got to figure things out. And that's what sociology does. And so it's hard to say it's a science, but in some ways it is. It's trying to scientifically study as much as it can. How it's done is is always in question. You know, what's what's better qualitative or quantitative? Um, and, and there is no right answer. Again, right. we always go back to right and wrong. Um, but realistically, I just want to have conversations about what do you think is right and wrong, right? If I'm, if I'm going to coach you, the first question I'm going to ask you is, you know, one, how are you? And I'm really going to understand your answer, right? Because the first answer you're going to give me more often than not is, you know, I'm good. Right. But and I'm going to be like, and that's, a, that's and, where cultural anthropology comes in because we have these socially safe behaviors. Yeah. And the first question I ask on. after that is, is that really the right answer? And more right. often than not, it's not. It's like, I don't think, like, does anyone answer honestly when they, so many times I've been like almost in tears and someone's like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm good. I think it yeah. just depends on how safe you feel in that specific social interaction, right? If it's yep. somebody I trust and I know that I can tell them that I'm not having a good day or that I just want to punch somebody in the face or that I'm about to cry, I'm going to do it because I've learned that that serves me better and I have better quality relationships when I do that. However, if I'm if I'm feeling like I can't keep control of my emotions, for example, or I'm in a public place where it's not appropriate, and I put that in air quotes, to display yeah. those emotions, I'm going to do the socially acceptable thing and say, fine. Yep. But it's about safety, right? How safe do I feel with that relationship that I have with the person who's asking me? Yep. Yeah. That's, and we yes. actually linguistically have different ways of asking the question based on our familiarity and safety with another person, right? How are you? Um, it used to be, how do you do? Just for fun. We'll go back in time linguistically a little bit. Um, because in another life slash career, I was a language teacher and a cross-cultural trainer. So like studying which particular greeting is appropriate in which scenario is actually a huge part of social interaction that's often invisible to people in their native language. Yeah. So, all right, how do you do went the way of the wind? Because it was a formality. What's the response to how do you do? It's how do you do? You just repeat it back. There is no social exchange there other than a formal greeting. So if I say, how do you do to you? You say, how do you do back? I'm not interested in how you are. So here we have the evolution of how are you, which initially was the sort of next question you would ask somebody who was a closer relationship to you than how do you do? So how are you elicited in some kind of emotional response? Over time, how do you do became less frequently used. How are you took its place. And so now we have a culturally acceptable, emotional, neutral response for how are you? So we have to ask other questions. How are you doing? Yeah. How have you been? What's happening? happening with you today or yesterday or since I saw you last. Now I'm asking more specific questions. And as language evolves, we have to adapt again because we will continue to create these barriers based on our personal safety. This is remarkably interesting. This is this is like <laughs> like linguistics has always been something I've I haven't necessarily had enough time to study, but it's so remarkably interesting to have these conversations because that little nuance uh I think shared across, you know, millions of people starts to kind of change how we perceive the conversation. Absolutely. Um, because we all know that question, how are you, is basically useless in everyday life if we're walking past someone and saying, oh, how are you doing? You know, or how are you? Right. And it, it becomes useless, but we don't really understand 
the full history behind it. And that's, I just love that. I learned something. It's not actually fundamentally useless. It still serves its purpose, which true, is you're true. safe. You're safe as a relative person because it's all about mm-hmm. levels of safety in society, right? Yep. There are in-groups and out-groups. There always have been. That's how we know who we share resources with, who we don't share resources with, who we take resources from, right? Who we protect, who we protect ourselves from and, and vice versa. And this is the really interesting social relationship because we're a unique animal in this space, right? <laughs> our... <laughs> Our flexible collaboration is what makes us unique and is what has allowed us to advance our technology the way that we have, right? But we don't do it 100% all the time. And it sometimes comes at the cost of the individual and sometimes comes at the cost of the group. And we don't, we don't nail that balance all the time because we're still evolving here, right? right? There's a really great book. It's um, Homo Deus. It was written by the same guy who wrote Sapiens. Yeah, I love that book. Oh, God, you got to go get Homo Deus, too, because that book is he really dives deeper into this, right? This idea of flexible cooperation. And it's like, aha, because we can study monkeys and we can study other um, primates. Right. And they're similar, but they don't do this the way we do. And that's why we have cars and they don't. Right. They can use sticks to get ants out of holes, but they can't collaborate enough. (laughs) Some people (laughs) they can't. Yeah, just no more cars. No more. Uh, my truck's no more F one fifties. No that? more. No more loud, obnoxiously <laughs> loud on purpose. Take off the muffler cars. Sorry, yeah. Dylan. I hope you don't have one. I have a Volkswagen. <laughs> it's pretty loud, but it's awesome. because it's old and it's a diesel. Not, not because you purposely <laughs> made it as loud, obnoxious. No, I got. <laughs> I, I got it, it for free, <laughs> and it was a it was a great investment for free. Um, you can't and beat so the Germans really when lucky. it comes to engineering cars. I just. <laughs> You know, don't tell the British that they're not going to be happy with that. But yeah, so linguistics is fantastic for helping us understand the social systems that we function in. And if you really want to understand your own culture or your own social structure, go learn another language because the rules are different Mm -hmm. and the ways we express ourselves are different, right? Like if, Mm -hmm. so I speak French bilingually, I speak German and Czech and they're both the, at this point, because I haven't used them in so long. But, you know, I'm a different person when I'm speaking French. And I met my husband when I was living in France. So he met me in French, right? Like, and then it was like, at one point along our relationship, he kind of said, he's like, you're a completely different person when you're speaking French versus when you're speaking English. Wait, what are you like? kind of hot. I was like, I think that's creepy, but thank you, right? So I like that you have like multiple personalities. Right? I like you're attracted to my schizophrenia. Cool. Oh, like we like we all don't have multiple personalities? Oh, absolutely. It's a social skill, right? (laughs) Being able to adapt to a situation and present aspects of our personality that serve us better and help our organism survive in certain situations. Absolutely. But it becomes hyper clear to ourselves when we start functioning in another language, because until you're very, very good in the other language and you're very comfortable, you don't have emotional attachment to what you're saying, Mm -hmm. which is why we all know that foreigner that can say words that are so highly offensive and not bad an eye. There's no emotional attachment to that word. Right. Right. Because there's no social conditioning that goes with it. Yeah. So yeah, I could bore your face off about linguistics all day. Oh, there's, there's nothing. (laughs) There's, there's nothing boring about it for at least me. I, I, I could listen to that, that discussion all day. I could have that discussion all day, but it's, you know, when, when we look at it in terms of like mental health, it really, it always comes down to how are your relationships like developing your ability to live with it, live within yourself, you know? And I think that's the ultimately to make it more practical to, 
my conversation, um, you have to be able to have conversations with yourself and others to be able to live, right? Yep. Like I, what, what I realized is I could not do that. You know, in 2015, when I was struggling through all of this, and I, I find this so, so similar to so many other people that I've talked to is that when you look at how you use words, right? And not just words verbally of like how you're expressing yourself, but also how are you using words within yourself or how are you using mm. images, however you're thinking, right? However you're approaching issues, solutions, you know, situations, circumstances is often a determination of how long you have left, right? Because if, if you're ultimately uh, always combating yourself rather than, you know, putting out the conflict in front of you, right? Where, you know, maybe I disagree with Chris, but I don't say it. What I instantly do is I create a personality within myself with, you know, that is Chris, but it's me. And now if Chris has always been harsh to me, now I've created a conflict within myself and I'm, I'm, I'm now developing that conflict 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of my fucking life. Yeah. Right. And, and all it would have taken, all of what it took would say, you know, Chris, I disagree with you. And here's why here's, here's how I think about that situation. Or you just say, Hey, Chris, I disagree. And I don't know how to explain myself, but I just disagree. Is this how the inner critic develops? I was just going to say, Liz, (laughs) it's Craig, right? That's actually what I was raising my finger for because this speaks to something Liz and I have discussed all the time about these external sort of requirements that society puts upon us. And when we internalize them to a point that even when they don't make sense for us anymore, we still hold on to them, it creates mm-hmm. so much internal conflict, right? And so there is actually a podcast episode entitled Shut Up Craig, because yeah. we named one of Liz's internal voices and recognized that its role in her particular like narrative of self yeah. was very unhelpful. And so she externalized it by every time she heard that narrative happening in her head, she would externally say, shut up, Craig. I think it was more like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Something like that. Sometimes. Uh, Craig was a real asshole. Of, so. I, God, you know how through your life you could, people come up to you and say just horrible, offensive things to you. And you're just like, for me, I'm either just like, oh, okay. And then just walk away and like go cry somewhere. That's mostly how I would deal with it. Or I start screaming. It's like nothing in between. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Craig became really big. And I think a lot of people have a lot of big, big giant Craigs. Yep. Sorry, yep. anybody named Craig who might be listening to this podcast. Sorry, Craig. I knew a person <laughs> I really didn't like named Craig and it just really worked. Sorry. To put this in the context of health and fitness, right? To sort of bring it back, because I think people are more and more accepting that physical fitness and mental health and fitness can't be separated, right? Is, you know, Mm -hmm. why are people showing up to the gym trying to get six packs and trying to bend their bodies into this form that they're not really willing to get into? And why are we willing to make those sacrifices? Like what are the gains there? And then how does that impact us? I think is a good place to go from here because I don't think it's the same as it was two years ago. I know the clients I have coming in aren't asking me for the same things. Nope. Which is great. So they don't want they don't want want six packs. That's not their number one goal anymore. anymore. I mean, I literally when I was working way back in the day when I was like a young lass, 
when I was working at 24 hour fitness. I mean, I literally had people bring in magazine pictures and say, this is what I want my arms to look like, or this is what I want my butt to look like. Cause there was like the butt revolution that happened where like everybody just wanted a giant ass. And I was like, I never stopped. That's still, that's still Thanks. happening. Thanks Jennifer Lopez. Smaller, right? <laughs> but they, they go, they go now to the surgeon for that BBL. Well, but I think a lot easier. I think this kind of externalization of internal conflict says a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you know, and and really, I think, I, I think we don't give one of the biggest things that I think is so undermining that we don't talk about enough. I don't talk about enough is food, right? And not not necessarily diet itself, but our relationship with food. Food mm-hmm. becomes its own relationship. It, it becomes its own fucking Craig, you know, in, mm-hmm. in regards to, you know, how culture has, you know, over time developed this image, this self image um, that has, you know, it, it's interesting to kind of like the advent of the mirror, right? And then the advent of the camera and seeing yourself through the, through the, through the mirror and also through the lens and, and how, you know, how social media has kind of transformed that and like what Instagram has been, right? Um, and how media has has clarified that image of this is what it's supposed to be. Obviously, the magazine, well, that came from a camera. So it's interesting, right? And food became, you know, food in itself became uh, its own coping mechanism. But mm-hmm. for, for many people, you know, I, it's such a, it's such a linchpin of, this is this is the the transformation that that could really change people's lives, and I I've really come to understand that as I've gone through my own journey of like I I know I've binge I binge eat right I I know there's I, there's recognition of and it sucks right like there's times in my life where I looked at myself I'm like wow you know COVID was a big a big eye opener for a lot of people but for me specifically it was food because I went from you know I came home from Afghanistan at like two ten. It ballooned up to like 250 and out like I, I did not understand what I was doing, but I was, I came from home from Afghanistan in 2019 and I was just like, fuck it. You know, like I, I just, I don't care anymore. Like I just, I just want to be home. I just want to enjoy life. But that was taught to me realistically on my own through so many years of practicing it. And, and everybody has a different relationship with food. And I, I think in America, uh, and I know, Chris, you're kind of like sitting <laughs> here with like, explode, right? I <laughs> have so much to say about this topic. But in America, culture has crafted food to be such a it, a disordered thing. right? It's, it's a weapon. It, it is. What it you eat is, is a weapon, right? Yeah. Because what you do eat, what you don't eat, uh, it says miles about your socioeconomic status. It says a lot about your personal belief system. Um, we've turned food from something that is culturally fulfilling and sustaining. And, and, and again, when we look across other cultures, especially European cultures, we look at things called blue zones from that, that study. Everybody knows about that one, right? When we talk about blue zones and we look at how they treat food and the, I'm going to use the word rules, right? But the, the cultural traditions and rules around food and eating and what food is for versus what we have in America, which is a weaponized food culture. Right. You are what you eat in the sense of your your morality is tied up in your food choices. And that is oh, an incredibly yeah. dangerous place to put food because you can't quit it. It's not well, alcohol. And, and you're set up for four cigarettes. So it's like 
you get all this judgment internalized and externalized plus you're set up for failure so it's like it's like do, do they want you to succeed if they who's the but this is an us them problem again like who's the in group who's the out group and and when we feel threatened we tend to look for that right so and, well, and we are who's, threatened who's by to our say? environment who's to say there isn't an out in an, an out group like when and when right. i say this is like it's not the traditional of it's not the traditional of like there's some reptilian overlords kind of looking down on us and saying we're going to do this to them it's it's right. industry right yeah. and i i would point out like what's probably one of the biggest industries in the in the food you know envelope it's sugar right yeah. It's fucking sugar. Like sugar is so huge. We don't even recognize how big the sugar industry is. It's, it's, it's pop, it's cake, it's candy, it's donuts, uh, all sorts of different things. And it's even in foods that probably shouldn't even have it. Pasta sauce. Right. Like it's, it's crazy how big sugar has become. And so it's not necessarily this idea of we're looking at the, again, reptilian overlords or it's Joe Biden or it's Donald Trump, right? It doesn't have anything to do with them. It's I'm perfectly it's, happy for it to be Donald Trump, just by the way. It's <laughs> just, it's just the industry. It's the industry that wants to maintain the status quo of we're it's making money. a lot of money. Right. It's, and that's what the incentive is, incentive is right, is, is monetary gain. That's our primary in this particular time in American history. Our underlying value is money. It is yep. the number one metric we measure success by. And while we continue to use that as the end-all be-all of what it is we're here for, like everything gets monetized, even down to when we start talking about women's rights and we start looking at, yeah. you know, when they when they start talking about how much money mom's labor is worth, we're, we're monetizing yeah. human care. And, and although I, I feel that deeply... <laughs> And I do feel like I do 25 jobs and, you know, they're all jobs I could pay somebody to do. Monetizing it is always going to sort of ruin it as far as I'm Mm -hmm. concerned. Right. And I think as a society, if we can't move away from the idea of money being the end all be all, we can't fix the the corruption that we see. Right. And, And that's how sugar gained the foothold that it did, because it does hijack your brain as well. Like it's mm-hmm. scarce in nature. If you get some of it, it's like you won the lottery. And mm-hmm. so now that we can produce it on mass at will, it, of course it rules. Right. You're you're using people's physiology against them. And it mm-hmm. makes a ton of money. So again, if we don't have a significant shift in our values and priorities about what we think life should be about and what we strive for, then we're going to keep making the same decisions and mistakes, right? Yeah. And some people might not think it's a mistake because those people who are making all that money probably think it's great. Yeah. Well, and what they need to like, this silly kind <laughs> of probably thing to point out, but like if they lived in a culture where you didn't, have to make tons of money to survive decently would they be so corrupt well i mean, I mean you find yeah. corruption everywhere i'm not gonna yeah. sit here and be like you I, tell but you know, there's again, a lot, you know. we can still go back to the fundamental struggle between the health of the individual and the health of the group right right yeah. as individual organisms anytime as an individual if you don't have a healthy group you just can't. You're kind of shooting yourself in the foot, right? It's a very Western or a very Eastern philosophy way to go, right? Let's because see. if you look at different cultures and cultural values, right? So this is something that I, I have spent a long time studying to be a cross-cultural trainer is how do different cultures view individuality versus collective good? How do they view time? 
right? Are they focused on now? Are they more focused on the future? Are they focused in the past? All of these different metrics that make up our belief systems have a huge impact for the kinds of decisions our governments make. So there isn't one person like lording it over all of us, but there's a system, a belief system at play that will generate these outcomes. And we have to, we have to be smart enough and aware enough, self-aware enough to question that and to say, hey, this is what this is leading us to. Is this what we want? And, and right now in America, the people who have the power, this is what they want. The, the question is, do you think it's possible to transform that in America? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's not going to be pretty. And I think historically, this is where history, when we start failing at teaching history, we stop seeing that this is a repeat pattern. <laughs> And that the outcome is pretty damn predictable, right? We are not the first civilization to face these kinds of issues. And we won't be the last. We have iterated and things are definitely better. We stab each other a lot less than we used to about 300 years ago. When? <laughs> right? But we, we still shoot each other a lot. perpetrate a bunch of violence against <laughs> our own kind, which is a bit ridiculous. When we Can we go back it. to swords instead of... It'd be more fun. I just okay. I feel like it's much more sporting. <laughs> Don't I feel like, like no. <laughs> I feel like it's. it's we'll we'll leave the gonna... decisions of what to use to other people. But but I think the... that the argument really is more about like how do we get to a place where we're not competing because yeah. we have an abundance of resources and until we realize that competing with each other is the problem yeah. and collaborating is the solution, we're going to continue to face this right. And and that's. Mm-hmm. What what gives me hope is like what we're doing now. Like mm-hmm. I think technology and social media, right? I I know a lot of people look at it and say this is this is the worst thing that you can that you can do for society and culture and whatever. Um, but in so many ways, you know, I'm on TikTok and I see what TikTok has to offer. Um, and TikTok is not a perfect platform. I will never go on record in saying that, but. What TikTok is offering is, I think, the contradiction to what Instagram really stood for for, mm, for yeah. many years of that perfection, right? People got so tired of seeing that that they turned to TikTok and said, this is some real shit, right? This guy's, this guy's fucking crying over here. I like mm-hmm. this guy. He's, he's talking like that's me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm the one crying, right? Uh, he, this guy's talking about feelings and emotions and things and stuff, right? And he's just being real, right? He's not bullshitting me. Um, and what that's done is obviously we're here, right? Like I'm having a conversation with you about this stuff. Right. And we're doing that on a scale that has never been seen before, right? Because TikTok itself, it has never been seen, you know, the growth of what TikTok became or has become or is becoming has never been seen before. The yeah. connection mm-hmm. that, that TikTok is offering. And again, I'm not saying it's perfect, but even an imperfect tool can create a connection that is practically useful for so many people. And that's why so many people mm-hmm. are connecting with things like trauma. That's why mm-hmm. I, that's why I really think the body keeps the score has become the book that it has become the, the Amazon bestseller that it is. It, I think it came from TikTok. I really do. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd love to I see agree. the, 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 like the numbers and see like how that, how that came of, of source because it was written, I think in 2012 or 2014. And now here it is, right? It's not in, a brand new book, right? In, and I think 20, people don't 20, realize. Right. 2020, 2021, it became an Amazon bestseller because guess what? People were thinking about fucking trauma and, mm. and that, that ability for a platform to 
make topics like, I, I mean, I just look at right now, make topics like Roe v. Wade, topics mm-hmm. like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Like these are conversations that have never been had at scale before, right? Roe v. Wade has not been talked about in 50 years, right? No. It's been, you know, hinted at here and there, but it has never been talked about at scale. Now, does that mean people are going to make good decisions with it? No, we'll see. Um, but like, think about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Think about the success and the like the historic situation that is happening right in front of us. Yeah, People are finally realizing, I think, that male males are not always the perpetrators of domestic violence. And that is a remarkably good thing for people to recognize, right? Yeah. That's not to say males are not the primary. I don't know. Like, that's not for me to say. But it is so important to understand that males are not the only ones that perpetrate domestic violence. And just having a conversation about domestic violence is a success. And that's what that's what TikTok has done. You know, sexual assault victims have a place to actually speak and talk and connect. I mean, it's it's a remarkable situation that that TikTok has has kind of, you know, we go back to the idea of safety. Like I've I've said this yeah. a lot. Like the the ability to have any conversation, the depth of any conversation is garnished only by the amount of safety you have in that conversation. And so mm-hmm. TikTok has become, though there are trolls, this place where people have almost disregarded the trolls to the point where I feel safe enough to talk about suicide or rape or sexual assault or domestic violence or uh, marital rape or, you know, like so many other things that, that have been historically swept under the rug. You know, like we can't talk about this stuff. Like don't talk about this in this family. How dare you? I think um, it goes right back around to this feeling of isolation, this feeling that I'm the only one that's had this experience. And yep. this is what this type of social media has done. It's blown the lid off of that. And it's actually created the ability for people to go me too. I mean, literally the me too movement, right? That's yep. why it happened because it was this revelation that I'm not alone. I'm not yep. alone in this experience. Mm. So many other people are having this. We've got an issue that now we can address because we can talk about it, right? And when you talk about like trauma recovery or therapy for trauma survivors, this is the number one way for people to start moving through it, right? It's talk therapy. There are other things too, I think really need more exploration. I was actually, we had a neuroscientist, uh, no, to the neuropsychologist on the live stream that I do with John McLernan a couple of weeks ago. And she was talking about this as well. She's done a lot of research here. And I kind of brought up also like, well, what's going on with alternative therapies such as, equine therapy or art Mm -hmm. therapy or other ways to get your brain out of its amygdala and through another pathway that gets it out into the world, right? Because talk therapy, fantastic. Absolutely works, right? We know that. But I think there are other ways we can interact with our environment that will help with this if we can't find the words, because this is also something trauma survivors often talk about, right? Is I don't have the words to describe it. I, I can feel it. I can't tell you about it. Right. right. And so mm-hmm. some people are able to, and that creates an opportunity for other people who can't talk about it to still feel seen and heard and understood. But I think we need to keep our minds open and not decide that there's still only one way to deal with trauma here too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's, there's also a piece of this where, you know, 20 years ago when, when someone was, uh, you know, when someone was sexually assaulted, you, you saw no repercussions, right? You yep. saw no accountability. And I think what you're seeing now 
or at least what I see, uh, which is particularly important when we talk about like Roe v. Wade, right? The the people that are standing up for Roe v. Wade to be taken down, right? The the specific House senators and you know representatives and stuff like that. Um, there's a person on TikTok that dug into their history and found people, women that were uh, in their past that were found to have abortions because of them. Right. Yep. And so there's, I think the last decade, the, the, the word that could probably be used most on, uh, on social media was probably hustle, the hustle mentality. Right. Well, this mm -hmm. year, this decade, I think is really going to be uh, upheld in terms of accountability. Yeah. I think people are going to look at uh, the world. They're going to look at their elected officials. They're going to look at their uh, abusers, accusers, uh, and they're going to say, well, this is what I saw you do, right? Yeah. Or this is what I know you did. And guess what? You're not going to get away with it. And, it, and you're going to see, I think, an era of leadership that is absolutely dismantled if you are a bad person. I, I hope I, so. God, that'd be incredible because I, think I just that's don't the next phase, right because we i don't think you can escape it no and I, I think the only way would be censorship which is why people are so worried right now about things being censored and yet you know i have my right. own feelings about elon musk right? because of my personal experiences but you know him yeah. stepping up and buying twitter you can argue about that all day right whether that's for good or for bad but one of the few things that he does that i have always stood behind is that he sees something fundamentally that he thinks is bad and he's on it right like whether yeah. he, he takes the right action or not nobody you know can say right or wrong whether or not 100 it's good or bad but he I acts think, i think what i like about him you know obviously that's a that's a good quality but i think what i love about him the most um and i don't necessarily have an opinion on him i just love this part about what he does is that he then explains right yeah like people will say like, oh, this was a terrible idea. And then he'll say, well, this is why but we did it. this is why I did it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that that is its own form of accountability. That's why I think, quite frankly, he's quite a good leader. Right. Where he, mm -hmm. not to say he's perfect. He could turn into Hitler and who knows. But he could absolutely if, if he maintains this ability to offer this is why I did it or this is what I'm thinking about and be able to be open to to thought to be open to what other people think um he could be a great leader but i don't and know he, i mean okay so my husband worked for spacex for six years and worked reasonably closely <laughs> with him he, you know he didn't he wasn't in there every day talking to him but he was on the raptor project which is the engine that flies on starship yeah and so you know it's one of the biggest projects that he's involved in it's his passion and you can fault him for some of how he handled things but the environment that he created allowed for innovation company yeah. was able to achieve. The environment that he created created a group sense of purpose and meaning to what they were doing that created outputs that nobody else was doing, right? Was he always awesome to interact with? No. Is anybody? No. Yeah. <laughs> Could he have handled yeah. things better? Yes. But one of the few things that he always, always pushes on is like this idea of if you've got something to say, if you really think something is wrong or something is right, say it. Don't fall victim to the hierarchy mentality mm -hmm. of it has to go through my boss who goes through your boss. It's one of his number one pet peeves, right? Yeah. Is if something doesn't get said because somebody's holding back for some kind of, you know, hierarchy issue. 
And it is one of the things that made SpaceX successful in the place of other companies, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's accountability. It's accountability on all levels. And, and I think it's this, you know, now we can start talking about Brene Brown and shame and vulnerability yep. because when we, when we have a feeling of shame or vulnerability, we don't act as our authentic selves, right? right? And we don't do it because we're afraid of repercussion. And he's not. And you can argue all day whether or not that's good or bad. And you can also say very categorically that it's because he has as much money that he, he can act this way. Because yeah. he can buffer himself from the repercussions. But I, that's how he got there in the first place was by being that guy. Yeah. So I think this, to bring it all around, right, this is what TikTok is doing. It's forcing accountability. It's forcing vulnerability. It's forcing people to record themselves saying something and then be yeah. held accountable to it, yeah. right? You, you can't, there's no more in this world today where you could be like, I never said that. Well, yeah. it's on video and I can well, prove you said Okay, that. there is deep <laughs> like, fake. I'm just going to say it, there is deep fake. Okay, that's true. <laughs> but, but for the most part, right? Like this is the purpose of, of all of this and it's yeah. a double-edged sword, right? So yeah. I think it's about how we use it. But for example, this is the idea behind the Deconstructing Health and Fitness podcast and the Deep Health Academy that John and I have been working on. Of like, let's get this conversation going. Let's be louder than the people seeking to undermine or to just personally profit. Let's be louder than that so that we can really start to change the narrative around what it is that is going on for right. people with their health. And, and mental health is a massive part of that. Yeah. Yep. Or at least so so the seeds of questioning of like, oh, maybe I don't have to do it that way. Maybe yeah, we did a whole episode that. on yeah, on critical thinking for that reason, right? How do you assess an argument? How do you assess if something somebody is saying it has validity or if mm. it's biased or if it's full it's of always fallacies? I'm sorry, it's always of course biased. it is. We're all human, <laughs> right? Like nobody yeah. says anything that is not somewhat personally motivated. It's it's about it's, <laughs> it's about disagreeing with respect. Right. I, I, I think I've I've always tried to do this with with obviously my own conversations, with my own podcast. And I have different conversations in my mental health coach capacity than I have with um, my my podcast host uh, situation. And also here. Right. Like there's a difference between owning a podcast and being the host and also then challenging someone that owns a podcast. Right. Yeah. And, and what I've found is that how I've been able to challenge people has been a hundred percent respectful because everyone that I, that I challenge, I've also gotten feedback of saying that was the nicest way I've ever been told I'm probably wrong. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's like, that always seems to be the place where, or how it's said of like, because I never just come out and say, you know, Chris, I think you're wrong. I say, are you trying to tell me something? Dylan? No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, I think, I think everything kidding. you've said today has been incredibly spot on. I love it. Um, but if, if I'm to approach that conversation, I'm going to say, you know, Chris, maybe, maybe that's not right. Right. Yeah. Like, because, because that's, that's a place where maybe I'm wrong, but maybe you're wrong. And so it, it also kind of creates this, this sense of, well, it sounds like maybe he wants to find the right answer together. Right. Right. And, mm -hmm. and crafting a conversation to include each person is so much better than saying, you know what, Chris, I think you're wrong. I think you're, you're a piece of shit and I don't ever want to talk to you again. Right. right. What does that solve? Yeah. Like, what is that? That's, that's the paradox that has happened, you know, in the, just the isolation that's happened in the, just the mm -hmm. political realm, but like in society, like look at fucking Facebook. It's just a, it's a family, uh, 
Oh God. It's like a, what what do you call it? Like a family reunion where, where people are just like yelling at each other and just like, you are the worst. Like, I never want to talk to you. You're, you're my racist uncle. Um, (laughs) And you know, like it, it just doesn't solve anything. And when we can Mm -hmm. start having a conversation of, you know, what if, you know, unk, what if you're wrong? Like, what if, what if these people, right. That you're, that you don't like, and you don't appreciate, what if they're actually really good people? Like, mm-hmm. you know, not to say that he's going to change his mind, but like, if you don't start approaching the conversation. Experience. Yeah. What if yeah. he's had an experience that was so overwhelming that gave mm-hmm. him this opinion? It was a survival response, right? Mm-hmm. I think it, what you're saying in essence is that if we don't hold space for people's beliefs and, and personal experiences, then we can't help them. We can't, even if they're wrong, even if they're wrong. Right. And we may be wrong. And if we can't come at it from a place of safety for each other, then we can't have a conversation. And that's where we've gotten to in society is that we've, we're coming at this as it's consistently uh, binary. A right. Like I'm right. You're wrong. And there's no in between because if I'm wrong, it threatens me personally. It threatens my sense of Mm. self personally. Like it's not an opinion I hold. It's who I am. Yeah. And that's an education problem because we're not teaching people how to think anymore. Um, And we're not teaching people how to have these conversations, how to approach it from a respectful, compassionate, empathetic place. How can you if you're terrified? Well, we're having these conversations right now. And at some point, someone's going to listen to this and say, you know what? I'm a teacher. I could change that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it's, it's not hard. Like it's not like the American revolution or the civil war. Like these things didn't happen for no reason. Like Correct. people started yeah. having conversation and said, you know what? I don't like this. I don't, I don't like that people are, are controlling me. I don't like that people are controlling them. Right. And mm-hmm. so the conversation becomes something different, right? Not to say we need a revolution, but we do need to have a conversation. You know, regardless. we don't necessarily have to have a violent revolution, right? I want to point that social, out. I think everybody social re- revolution. Well, you look at the Czech Republic and the Velvet Revolution, right? They're one mm-hmm. of the best places to look at for how to get something like that done without just murdering everybody, right? And yep. it's very baked into the Czech culture now. And you know, my daughter was born there, <laughs> and I lived there for three years. And I can tell you, it's a very interesting, different perspective on ways you can handle conflict, right? And I think this is, this should just be part of every single school's curriculum, right? Is mm-hmm. conflict resolution, something along the lines of understanding how other people have the same feelings as you. And if they're exhibiting these feelings, it doesn't mean it's an attack, right? Like Absolutely. these are some really core concepts, you know? So, I mean, I think we've touched on so many different things today, <laughs> It's hard to sum it all up, but if you yeah. were going to sum up what this episode really kind of encompassed, what what would you say? What would I say? Or like, what what's, your, what's your what's <laughs> your yeah? What's your like thirty second sound bite of uh, amazing awesomeness? You, you're not right or wrong, and you need to learn that the ability to determine right or wrong is is really not up to you. It's up to everyone all at once. And mm-hmm. so if you think you're right or wrong, you're, you're most likely not. And, and that's, <laughs> it's that simple, right? And, and when, you, when you come to terms with that, you, when you come to an acceptance of that, right? This, this could have been a conversation about mental health, but I think this is a conversation about mental health, right? When you, mm-hmm. when you look at your life, 
right? Practically speaking, when you're walking through life and you say, I'm the worst, you're not right or wrong, right? There's parts of you that you look at yourself and you say, yeah, there are problems here, right? But you're also missing out on the, on the parts of you that you don't realize you're wrong about, right? And this recognition of allowing yourself to just not be right or wrong and to look at the reality of the situation and recognize that nobody else is right or wrong, right? The, the fact that, you know, the, the commandment says thou shall not kill, and yet we have a justification for murder, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have justifiable homicide. Like yeah. if, if that doesn't profoundly understand that humanity doesn't know what's right or wrong, like that's it. Like it's simple, right? We can both justify homicide and then also look at homicide as a, as a fundamental crime, the one of the worst, right? And so there's no right or wrong that is so profound that you need to, that you need to stand on the mountaintops and say, everybody else is the worst thing in the world. If you don't believe this, it's have a conversation, even if it's with yourself and understand both sides of the story. What are you right about within yourself? What are you wrong about within yourself? How can you have deeper conversations to emphasize what is right about you Mm. and how can you emphasize conversations that can help you redefine what you think is wrong about you and and have the fucking conversation? It's that simple. So it makes me think of this coaching question that um, <clears throat> the legendary John Berardi gave me many, many years ago and is now a pillar of some of the precision nutrition coaching. But it it really sums up what you said. And it's the question, how's that working? Yeah. Right. There's no right or wrong. How's it working? Because until we can step back and assess things from that place of like, it's not a moral judgment. It's not a anything but a like effectiveness question, right? Is this what I want? And is this working for me? Because if it isn't like all the science even now backs this up, we can change it, right? Neuroplasticity, we can change it. There's it's never too late. Old dogs do learn new tricks, right? They just have to believe they can. So I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. This was fantastic. Yeah. I am so glad we finally made it happen, even though we had to push back a couple of times. <laughs> All good. Um, definitely love to have you come back on again. I think there's so many untapped subjects here because there, there's just so much to talk about in this space. Yep. Um, but yeah, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you uh, for having me. It was an honor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we will be collaborating more in the future. And uh, yeah, thanks to everybody who tuned in. You can find Dylan on TikTok. If he wasn't clear about that, he's definitely there. He's also got a book coming out. So in the captions down below where we post this on social media, you should be able to find a link to his book as well. What's the name of your book? Uh, Defy the Darkness. Defy the Darkness. All right. So I did, I did yeah. the audible for it. So I'd, oh, I'd recommend oh, the audible. Very nice. I love, I only listen to my I, your voice now. Would absolutely, I would listen to anything, right? You have a very soothing voice. So. <laughs> Thank you. That's, <laughs> All right. that's one of those things that I, I was quite surprised about when I started like TikTok of people are, were like, you have an incredible voice. And I'm like, this is weird. Yeah, but, it's but one I, of those invisible things about ourselves, right? But yeah, thank you for narrating yeah. your own book. Because it would be weird to listen to like your book. Yeah, yep. yeah. Sure, right? All right, well, thanks so much. That's going to be it for us for thank today. You. Tune in again next week. We'll have a couple more exciting guests coming. And yeah, please let us know if you've got any questions.